Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. So if we hide God's word in our heart, we'll always have it ready at hand, right? Uh, and we do need to think about what we think about, don't we? All right? And we do need the sort of reflex of our mind to be God's word. And so I encourage us to continue memorizing 1 Peter. If you need to catch up, catch up. It's not a race, though. Take your time. Jump in in chapter 2 and, and catch us in chapter 2 or jump in in chapter 1. Learn a sentence, learn a verse or two every day. Hide it in your heart. It will bear great fruit. Amen? So let me pray for us and we'll turn to our sermon for this morning. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we give you praise and thanks for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ, your Son. We were lost, and we would not have been found. We were in danger of judgment, and there was no other rescue. But you sent your Son for us to redeem us and to make us your own precious people, to make us new, to forgive us and to cleanse us and to make us righteous, dressed in his in his white robes, and you have purchased for us an eternal place in your kingdom through faith in him. And how marvelous, you have sent your spirit into our hearts to live, to seal us until the day of redemption. You've sent your spirit into our hearts to empower us, to, to witness for you, and to sanctify us in all things. And you left us the treasure of your word. So we pray, O oh Lord, that you would right now, Lord, squeeze out distraction, that you would, you would gather us up into yourself, that you would focus us on your word, that you help us to think carefully uh, about your word and its meaning and to think carefully about its application to us uh, as a church and an application to our lives. Well, we want more of you this morning. We wish to be closer to you this morning. We wish to know you better, to be more useful for your glory. Visit with us, we pray. Comfort us, instruct us, help us, correct us, teach us, rebuke us, bind us up, give us what we need, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, if you're here with us this morning for the first time, uh, welcome again. And uh, just to give you a little context, you have parachuted into um, the, the fourth sermon in a series that we've called Embracing the Mission. Um, when we begin the year each year, we take those first five Sundays, we have historically, and we do a topical series on our mission and objectives as a church. And normally we go through what we call our five M's, uh, but this year, having never sort of really meditated on our mission statement as a congregation, we decided we would walk slowly through our mission statement as a way of encouraging us to, to make a fresh embrace of what God has called us to be and to do uh, here as a church and, and in our neighborhood. So we've called it Embracing the Mission. And if you've been here these last couple of weeks, you know that in some ways we've been trying to shepherd ourselves through uh, kind of four questions. We've called these the four key questions uh, that we, we think sort of lead us to a deeper embrace of the mission and being equipped for the mission. And that first question is very simply is, why am I here? You could be anywhere. You could be at any church. Why are you here? We want to get clear in our minds the sense of calling and commitment to this particular place, this particular um, mission, 
uh, our fellowship here in the neighborhood. And the second question is, maybe you are already embracing the mission, or, or maybe you're already equipped for the mission, but you're not embracing it. And the question becomes, why am I holding back? God's put stuff in you in the way of gifts. He's put stuff in you in the way of purpose and vision. You've had in your previous Christian life equipping to fulfill that, and yet maybe you're, you're sort of on the bench not saying, put me in, coach. Well, why are you holding back? Or maybe it's the opposite situation. You, you, you're like, yo, I'm all in. I'm ride or die for this mission and for this neighborhood, um, but I haven't had that experience of being equipped. There are things that I feel like I'm, I'm missing, and so the question becomes, what do you need? What, what, what tools do we need to put in your belt uh, for you to sort of move on that passion for mission along with us? And then maybe you're sort of all the way on the other end of the curriculum or, or the continuum. You embrace this mission. You're equipped for this mission. You're, you're in the game. And the question becomes, well, is there any hindrance? What's in your way? Are there things that we can remove so that you might be even more fruitful in the cause of Christ? And so we've been in this series with that, with that ambition, with that goal of, of sort of all of us, each of us, and all of us together having a full embrace, or maybe a fresh embrace of our mission as a church uh, and being uh, further equipped for that mission or at least identifying what equipping we need to be effective uh, in that mission. And so our mission statement is uh, Anacostia River Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. And we began our series just by thinking about the fact that we exist. That's not by our own strength. That's by God's miraculous working. He's given us the revelation of Jesus Christ in the gospel. He's given us divine promises. He's given us divine authority to exercise the keys. We were looking at uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel in that sermon. So we want to celebrate the fact that we even exist. We don't take that for granted. Then we sort of thought about what it meant to glorify God. And we try to take off the sort of Indiana Jones notion of glorifying God. We ain't got to swing on ropes through the temple of doom, you know, to, to, to bring God honor and glory. We thought about, uh, from Romans 14 and 15, we thought about the everyday ways in which we can glorify God by using our freedom to bless others and by being mindful of the conscience of others that we might win others to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we were thinking about making disciples, and so we went to that classic text, Matthew chapter 28, um, verses 16 to 20, um, and we wanted to think about disciple-making for doubters, didn't we? But we sometimes doubt whether or not we can do that. We doubt whether or not we're prepared. We doubt whether or not God will use us, and we saw there that among the 12 apostles, some doubted. And these are the very persons that God has entrusted his mission to, a, a ragtag bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, some of whom were worshiping him, some of whom were struggling with doubt. And it's to them that he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, right? That's a call that falls upon our lives as well. And now we come this morning to the next phrase in our mission statement. We want to make disciples in two places. The first is right here where we live, the four corners of the block. And so this morning, what we want to think about is just that very notion, the four corners of the block, our presence here, our ministry here. We want to think about the things that might get in the way of our embracing our ministry on the block. 
Uh, and in this sermon, I don't want us to leave necessarily with a bunch of do's, a, a list of things that we can do in terms of application. I want us to leave this morning primarily with um, some ways to think, or maybe some ways to rethink our notion of place and embodiment and witness here. Now, I want to apologize in advance if apology is needed. I don't know. This will be a little bit more lectury and at points, a little bit more theologically geeky, okay? But y'all, y'all good, right? All right, so here we go. We're going to be in Titus chapter 1. I'm going to read that chapter for us, but really um, the text, that in, the verse that inspires a lot of our thinking this morning is going to be verse 5. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5, but by the time we finish, we will have sort of picked some flowers from this entire chapter. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, reads, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Here's our theme text. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And when we come to this sort of topic this morning, the question that's hanging over the text for me, over this conversation for me, uh, is this question. How does a church reach a neighborhood for the neighborhood's holistic goal, good. That's what we want to do. We, we want to impact the neighborhood for the neighborhood's holistic good. Well, how does the church do that? And particularly, how should the church think? What, what kinds of frameworks and theological ideas should be motivating it in order to be the kind of congregation that, that makes a difference in the place where it's located? And this morning, I want to suggest three things. Number one, we will be that kind of church when we are local. We're truly local. Number two, we want to be culturally aware. We want to be culturally aware. And number three, we want to be an alternative to the unsaved community. We want to be an alternative to the unsaved community. Paul begins his letter to Titus by reminding Titus of his assignment. Again, it's right there in verse 5. And if we would put put verse 5 in our own words, we might put it something like this. Paul is saying, you are in Crete, Titus, to reach the island by planting churches in every town on the island. That's Paul's vision for Titus' ministry in Crete there. Now, this may sound silly, but to reach Crete, you actually have to be in Crete. He can't be in Nicopolis in chapter 3, uh, near the end of the, of, the, of the book. Paul mentions he's in a place called Nicopolis with a bunch of other team members. See, he can't, Titus can't be in Nicopolis and reach Crete. He can't be in Ephesus and reach Crete. He can't be in Jerusalem and reach Crete. If he's going to be effective at impacting the neighborhoods in Crete, he actually has to be there. We, we can't reach a place that we don't have a presence in. Notice that Titus now is not in Crete in some general way. Paul specifies that he must plant elders in every town. 
Now, the scholars of the New Testament tell us that in Crete, there is somewhere between 20 and 40 towns in that island nation. So each of those towns, notice now, he's, he's to appoint elders, plural. Each of those towns are to have teams of pastors that, that shepherd the church there. This is why I say he's calling Timothy to a church planting movement. You don't have elders someplace where a church doesn't exist. Right? And so he's saying there's got to be gospel-preaching churches, there's got to be Christ-following churches in all of those towns led by biblically qualified pastors who shepherd them. And so what Paul is giving Timothy uh, and what the Bible is giving us is a vision for making the gospel and making the church unavoidable and available in every place, in every town. Now, this biblical vision is why ARC plants churches. In our, in, our, in our short history of almost nine years, we've had the privilege of, of planting two other churches, and maybe that's not something that's common from your church background. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you get bigger, et cetera? Well, we could have a bigger church, but we'd still only be one church. And we live in a city so dense that everybody can't come here. I mean, you're you comfortable right now because you got some seats between you. All right, let this place fill up. We'll see who's sanctified. They in my seat. They, all, they always clapping all big, you know. You know, we'll find out real quick who's sanctified, right? So, so if we want to reach the whole city or reach the whole neighborhood, we need multiple churches in different neighborhoods that are making the gospel unavoidable and available to everyone here. Now, we've never had an official vision statement as a church. It's hard to take the whole Bible and put it in one vision. But if we had one, it might be something like what's implied in Titus verse, chapter 1, verse 5. It might be something like this. We envision a day where every neighborhood in southeast D.C. has a healthy, faithful, vibrant, gospel-preaching church that serves and impacts the neighborhood holistically. We, we don't just want churches here. Holy huddles of people disconnected from the environment, disconnected from our neighbors. We, we actually want to live here, know somebody, help somebody, serve somebody, be known, be helped, be served by others, and actually contribute to the well-being of our community. We want healthy, vibrant, faithful, gospel-preaching churches that live and take the gospel out in practical ways. Now, if you allow me a little nerdery here, for this to happen, we're going to need an emphasis on being local. We're going to need an emphasis on being local. And for that to happen, we're going to need a theology of place and embodiment. We're going to need a theology of place and embodiment. Place must mean more than geography or maps or physical areas. Place must be giving theological meaning, and our embodiment in that place must be giving theological meaning. We're not just living someplace because it's cheap. We're living in that place because God is there, and because God means to meet us there, and because God means to meet all the other people in that place through his gospel, the gospel of his Son. I mean, think about this, this theology of place. If this is a new phrase to you, let me try and give you a, a little skeleton outline for it, for thinking about it. And let, me, and let me begin by asking a question. What's the first thing that God creates in the Bible? Come on now, it's a sword drill. 
All right, it's the very first, it's the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well done, class. Now, let me ask you a follow-up question. What are the heavens and the earth but places? God is a place-making God. Everything that happens from that point happens in a place, in particular places, and not just the heavens and the earth abstractly. If you follow God's activity in creation from Genesis 1 through the early chapters of Genesis, he gets more and more local. So he creates the heavens and the earth, and then he begins to depopulate it with plants and trees and all the other things from the six days of creation. On the sixth day, who does he make? Okay, come on now. Y'all talk back. We, all right, we still Baptists now. All right, we got visitors. Don't try to get cute now, all right? He makes, he makes man, and how does he make man? He scoops dust, he forms him, he breathes his breath into his nostrils, and man becomes a living soul. And that's what man is, an embodied soul in a place. The fullest expression of our humanity, when we are most human, that we are experiencing what it means to be embodied and what it means to be souls and what it means to be present in a place. And the whole Bible it sort of begins to revolve around place and God's relationship with man in place. So in Genesis chapter 2, he creates the Garden of Eden, put them in that particular place where they are to meet with him and where they are to cultivate the earth and fill it with his glory. But Genesis 3 tells us the story of humanity falling into sin. And one of the things that sin affects is not just our relationship with God, where we are now in danger of God's judgment instead of his blessing, but it affects our relationship with the place itself. The earth is cursed. And now the earth has thorns and thistles and becomes a place that's associated not with pleasantness, which is what Eden means, but a place associated with pain. Pain in childbearing, pain in work. God says you will work the ground, but the ground now is going to resist you. And so now man has this relationship where place was meant for his nourishment, but place has become a place of conflict, a place of, of pain. So much so that in, in Genesis chapter 4, what happens with those first brothers? Cain kills Abel. His blood is spilled on the ground. The ground cries out to God because of this spilled blood. And what happens to Cain? He's expelled from his home now. He is displaced. We read along a few chapters more, and uh, man is doing what man does, and we come down to around Genesis chapter 10, and what do we have? The story of the Tower of Babel. Man has built himself a city now, and he's proud of his city, and he decides, in this city, I'm going to build a tower that reaches all the way to the heavens. Now man is idolizing place. He's turning place into a, a marker of his own glory instead of God's glory. And what does God do? God says, you know what? I'm going to confuse you, and I'm going to scatter you from this place. Confuses the language, scatters man across the earth. So now man lives exiled from the garden, displaced from his home. That becomes for so many of us uh, an experience. We get um, displaced. Uh, we're displaced because rent's too high. We're displaced because there's a war in our home country. 
We're displaced and homeless in so many ways. And if we're Christians, we're told very explicitly in 1 Peter and other places, we're exiles in the whole world. This world is not our place. And so what God does is make us the promise of a new place, of a new home. He first promises it to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He calls Abraham out of his father's country, out of his father's home, and says, go to a place that I will show you. That becomes the promise of the promised land. And Israel journeys looking for that land and enters that land. But that land was really only a commercial. It was symbolic. It wasn't the final place that God had intended to spend with his people. And so we find Jesus in John's gospel around John 14 saying, listen, I go to prepare a what for you? A place for you. That where I am, you can, you can come and be with me. And we see that fulfilled again, not in the Israel of this earth, but we see that fulfilled in the new Jerusalem of heaven. Coming down from God like a city adorned for a bride, adorned for a husband. And so we are journeying now to that place where we shall forever be with God and where there is no more pain, no more death, no more dying. The old things are passed away. God wipes every tear from every eye, and God invites us into the the banquet, the feast that he has prepared for his people. That's the whole story. Yeah, you can praise God. All the drama of God's salvation in some way centers on the importance of God's people being with God in God's place enjoying him forever. And so place has theological significance. So when we talk about the four corners of the block, I want us to have some kind of working theology of place in mind and some sense of our embodiment in that place. That's what gives our place and the people in it meaning, profound and eternal meaning. And it's our calling until we get to that final place to be embodied in neighborhoods and communities as a way of giving evidence to the presence of God and his kingdom in that place. So we would even go to what some people think is the wrong place in order to bring people to the right place with God. That's our calling. Now, there are two forces that work against this theology of place and embodiment. There are many forces, but, but two I want to talk about here a little bit. Two forces that, that cause us to live dislocated lives and disembodied lives and things that I think we wish to rethink in order to be more integrally whole, in order to be healthier as human beings who are embodied souls um, meant to be in place. What are those two things, Pastor T? I'm glad you asked. It's the automobile and the internet. And somebody said, now I see you, you meddling now. Both those things tempt us to live dislocated and disembodied lives. Now, if you want to think about the theology of embodiment, we did a series on this when the pandemic began because, again, of how it forced us to renegotiate our relationships with other bodies and other places, et cetera. So you can find that on YouTube or find it on SoundCloud. Feel free to, to go back to that. 
But both the car and the internet have, have sort of tempted us to try and live dislocated lives, to try and live everywhere all the time, and disembodied lives, to try and live and inhabit places where our bodies ain't. And the extent to which we do that, we actually become less human. We actually do damage to the nature of our humanity. Now, you can see the evidences of that everywhere. We were never designed to be everywhere all the time, all at once. That might make an interesting movie title, but it's going to be a painful and disastrous way to try and live. So, the car. Before the 1950s, car ownership wasn't all that common. But in the 1950s, car ownership exploded. Um, before the 1950s, people lived a pretty rooted life in a local community. After the advent of the car, people were all of a sudden mobile across great distances. The, the highway system is built, and uh, the very geography of, of places change uh, when the car comes. And that, that has fascinating effects on how we live locally and how we are embodied and how we understand place. So before the car, you know, most people lived in walking distance of everything they needed right? Life was lived at about three miles per hour, about the rate at which we walked. After the car, life gets much faster. We live now in traffic, and, and we, we're on a great hunt for the, the nice parking space, right? For some of us, that's the one thing that causes us to pray. Lord, give me a parking space. The one thing that we praise God right in front of the door, you know, God, I'm your favorite because of a parking space. It's changed our relationship to things, right? Before the car, there was a lot more socializing in parks and uh, in front yards and on front porches. You know, just walking in the evening after dinner and greeting your neighbor was a, a common occurrence. Now, in the car, there's so much isolation, right? If we got garages, we may never even see our neighbor because we jump in the car, in the garage, we turn the radio on. Sometimes the radio ain't even enough. We put in ear, earbuds, right? And it's like we are isolating ourselves from the world that we are now passing at higher and higher speeds. We don't see the faces of our neighbors. We don't know the names of our neighbors. We don't stop at their houses. We don't talk with them over the fence. Before the car, again, life was much more integrated. You lived, shopped, played, worked, went to school in the same place. Now, through a thing called zoning and zoning laws, Shopping has to happen over here. Living has to happen over here. Manufacturing work has to happen over here. And so now we live these dislocated lives, traveling between the various zones that somebody who don't live where I live has drawn on a map and decided that these things are over here and not over here. It's changed the way we relate to the physical geography of our communities. Then along comes the Internet. Al Gore founded the internet, discovered the internet, whenever he did that. <laughs> and that's added to our disembodiment, right? Friends and likes are buttons you click rather than people you meet and experiences you have. We can spend hours in selected online fantasies instead of minutes talking to the actual people who live in our houses. Now, before the car and the internet, again, we were much more 
embodied. And, and all of this is affected, this is why I'm talking about it, all of this is affected how we think about church and how we do church. Right, so churches used to be parish churches, neighborhood churches, in, in the usually built in the very center of the neighborhood or the town. This is why you go to almost any city, go downtown to the square, and what you'll find is a church on every corner of the square. Because churches used to be essential social institutions at the heart of community, and that was reflected in the very geography of the neighborhood. And churches used to be sisters to one another. Uh, at least inside of the denominations, that's our sister church over in that neighborhood, and, and we would cooperate and gather and, uh, and serve together. But now, given the car, given the internet, given the ways we are displaced and disembodied, churches are now commuter and online. They're disembodied and dislocated. The churches now, rather than being places of essential social networks, are oftentimes more like consumer experiences and products. People are deciding if they're going to purchase that service with their time. And, and churches have now become, instead of sister congregations working together, have more often become competitors for market share. Well, you heard me say this a number of times if you've been around for a while. We are not in competition with other churches for members. We're in competition with Satan for souls. Right? So if the church that meets in this same place later on this afternoon at 3 or 4 o'clock or whatever their time, their service is, if they blow up in this place and revival breaks out, that's a win for us because we're all on Team Jesus. Uh, we don't experience any jealousy about that, not, uh, we, not that we don't crucify. We may need to crucify some things, but, but we, that's a win for Jesus. It's not about ARC being greater or slicker or fancy or cooler or whatever than another congregation, it's about all God's people flourishing where we are placed and the community flourishing because of our presence there. I mean, all these kinds of changes is what makes it difficult for some people to even think about going to the creeks of the world, much less living there and serving there. Because now these are the neighborhoods you don't live in, you drive around you avoid because of the bad neighborhoods. I love the way Jonathan Brooks puts it in his book, Church Forsaken. He says, there are no God-forsaken places, only church-forsaken places. To put it another way, the church has been so shaped by worldly factors, so deeply and so subtly, we don't even recognize it. And here's the proof that's in the pudding. If you would ask me the question, where are the next 20 churches going to be established in the Washington, D.C. area or in Washington, D.C., I could tell you with a fair degree of accuracy where those 20 churches are going to be just by looking at the city's 10-year plan. They're going to be where all the new affluent middle-class suburbs are being planned and neighborhoods are being planned, where the gentrification is being planned. And not going to be in the neighborhoods that are declining and neglected and vulnerable because economic factors are shaping the church more than gospel factors. 
If we don't have a theology of place that understands that God is in every place and God loves all the people in that place and we are meant in obedience to God to go to every place, to preach the gospel, to love people, to serve people, etc. If we don't have a theology of place, we're going to just be swept along with the planning departments of local cities that we never meet but nonetheless determine what our churches look like. So I want to invite you to a bit of resistance here to be motivated and moved more by the Bible and God's concern for every place and every people than we are by market forces, than we are by the Internet or cars. I love the way one South African writer put it. He says this, we need places to be fully human. If we want to accomplish God's mission to to the glory of God, we cannot settle for an abstract life in general. We live and flourish in particular conditions, the same where God works, namely in the conditions of time and place. We are not disembodied angels. We have a street address where God can find us. We want that reflected in how we live. And so to embrace our mission, we will have to embrace being local. We will need to be more fully embodied in our specific mission neighborhood, which for us has always been defined as Southeast D.C. If you want to be a little bit more particular, the, the neighborhoods of Anacostia and Fairlawn, that area, that's where we started. That's, that's sort of um, the center of the target of our mission field. We too as a church has been displaced a little bit since the pandemic, so now we're down here uh, in, in a different neighborhood, which we also love and wish to serve and wish to reach. Um, but this is what we're about, trying to be embodied in a place with the gospel, with Christ's love, that we might make a difference in our neighborhood. You need to be local. Number two, and these next two points will be much quicker. Don't panic. Number two, we need to be culturally aware. We need to be culturally aware. Every place has a culture. That's why there are slogans like, don't mute D.C., don't mute Go-Go, right? Don't mute D.C. And that's because the people in that place have a story. And from that story emerge the values of that people. If we're going to be holistic, do holistic good in a neighborhood, we must be culturally aware of that neighborhood. And, and, and as we're working on the sermon, the, the illustration, the sort of negative illustration of this um, was a news story I saw a couple years ago um, about the new residents moving in up around Howard University. H-U. Right? I, I love that. I love that. And then when they be like, H-H-H-U. Come on. <laughs> Love that. So it's just, they, they, they're talking, uh, the new story was about um, newer residents walking their dogs on the campus, dogs handling their business, and they leaving it there on the campus. And so it's a, it's a, it's a stunning example of disrespecting the people in a place, right? Well, it got worse. They interviewed this one fellow, and a uh, little fellow clearly is not from, he's not from D.C. And, um, and they were interviewing him and asked him what he thought about the administrators and the students complaining about that and asking for that. <laughs> he, said, he said, well, if Howard University doesn't like it, they can just move to campus someplace else. I was clutching my pearls. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> oh, the unmitigated gall, right? The audacity. 
That's, that's how gentrifiers think, right? That's how gentrifiers think. Now, we're going to see Paul's cultural awareness here in verses 10 to 16. So look, look with me back at Titus chapter 1, and look at Paul sort of giving Titus some understanding of the context. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Those are strong words. But it's an analysis of the culture in Crete, the sort of prevailing uh, ethos in Crete. Notice he gives t uh, Titus a few words, verses 10 and 11, about the religious scene there. You've got these Judaizers, these people of the circumcision who are teaching false things, upsetting whole families. Then he talks a little bit there about the, in verse 12, about the moral condition of the place. Now notice he is citing Cretan philosophers. This is what Cretan folks say about Cretes, Cretans. Right? He's saying this is, this is what is in their own books, right? And by the way, it's true. So he's marrying their study and observation, right? He's paying attention to the culture of the place. And then he comments in verses 15 and 16 on the spiritual condition of the folks. These folks have a, a defiled conscience, right? These folks don't have a relationship with God. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. It's a religious place but the power of godliness is not really there. Now, Paul's point in saying all of this is not to just put down in print uh, in the Bible forever negative things about Crete. Notice, notice his agenda in verse 13, the therefore. He says, rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth, he's implying that, no, what we want them to do is to turn to God and to believe in God and to trust God. But in order to share the gospel in an intelligent way in that context, you got to know what people are thinking. you got to know what they're like. you got to sort of in that way contextualize the gospel for them. So that's what we want to be. As a church, we want to be students of our place. We want to be students of our community. We want to know something about the religious scene. We want to know something about the, the moral character of, of our neighborhood. We want to know something about the spiritual condition of our neighborhood so that we can make the gospel clear and accessible and powerful. Now, again, to do that, we can't be gentrifiers. We've really got to be healthy missionaries. And let's be real clear, in the history of Christian missions, many times Christian missionaries have been the gentrifiers. They have been the oppressors. They have been the ones who have helped to colonize a place. That ain't what we're talking about. That ain't what we're talking about. And so we need to understand the difference here. The gentrifier doesn't care about the local culture. They don't care about the local people. The, the very nature of gentrification is that it displaces people. It removes people, and it disrespects culture. That should be really different from how Christians live. 
The Christians should live as thoughtful missionaries who are actually seeking to understand and to respect people and place and culture so we can make Jesus known in understandable ways. You know, the gentrified formula is basically remove the people, reject the culture, and rebrand the neighborhood. This is why we got neighborhoods now like the Bridge District. Well, you talking about Barry Farms? I'm talking about, what's the bridge district, right? But they didn't ask you if they could hang that sign on your block, did they? Right? We got Noma, places like that. I ain't never been to Noma. Where Noma at? Noma at. Just renaming stuff and removing people and rejecting culture. But the Christian's formula needs to be something like this. Approach with respect. Appreciate genuinely and then announce the gospel. It's an entirely different way of relating to the neighborhood. One looks to be an acceptable outsider until it's indigenous, that's the Christian. The other looks to bulldoze and to displace. Now, obviously, we don't want to be the gentrifiers of a neighborhood or we don't want to displace our neighbors. We don't want to disrespect the, the culture of our communities. We at least want to be people who understand and respect the culture so that we can, again, effectively represent Jesus. But, but I think our effectiveness now requires that we become more than missionaries in the community. It requires that at least some of us become residents in the community. Now, don't get me wrong. We're free to live wherever we choose to live. We're not going back and taking back what we said earlier about Christian liberty and Christian freedom and the, and the conscience. You're, you're not in sin if you don't live in Southeast. You're not in paradise if you live in PG County, right? right. You just live where you live, all right? And God is in that place, right? So we're meant, though, remember from two summers ago, we're meant to use our freedom to what? To bless others. So if we're using our freedom to choose where we live without some category of where can I be the greatest blessing to my neighbors, then we're using our freedom selfishly, not missionally, right? We should live where we can be a blessing. That's going to be better than living where we can barely afford it. So we might see ourselves in one of three categories when it comes to knowing the culture of our neighborhoods, being aware, having a presence in our neighborhoods. We, we could be either visitors or missionaries or at home. Now, let me say something real quick. You can be a resident or non-resident in each of those categories. So there are resident visitors in D.C., people who have lived in D.C. for 30 years as 30-year tourists who have made no real investment in the neighborhoods and the places where they live. They enjoy all the amenities, but they are not psychologically and emotionally and relationally connected to place, right? So this, this in this sense, ain't about your address. It's more about our mindset. So we could be visitors, right? Or, and, and in that case, if we're visitors, church is just a preaching point we go to. We go, we hear a sermon, we sing some songs we enjoy, then we out. Whether out is across the street or across the line, Right? We're just tuning out. We're checking out from this place we happen to go to to do a spiritual thing. We can move up the line a little bit, and, and we can be instead missionaries. Now, the thing about a missionary is, um, the way I'm using it here, is you're in a place with a particular assignment. 
And again, you can be resident or non-resident. So our brother Pastor Dennis, our brother Pastor Tim and their families, um, if you know like I know, they are as visible and present in a neighborhood as any of us who live here. They have a genuine godly missional presence and a genuine godly spiritual concern for what's happening in our neighborhood. Because this is, as a church, where, where we are, where we're serving, where we're trying to make the gospel known. But they live in Delaware. <laughs> they live way up in Upper, 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 Upper Marlboro, right? But they're invested, aren't they? So it's not about your address in that sense. So I don't, I don't want us to slip into thinking that. Or we could be residents. We can be home. Now, you cannot live in a neighborhood and the neighborhood be home. This is home for Xavier. He lives in McKinley, Texas. Why is this home for Xavier? It's the place that shaped it. The place where his family lives and is rooted. It's the place where he has the oldest bonds, the oldest connections. And so I trust that even living down in Dallas, Texas, in McKinley, Texas, his thoughts and his heart are often turned back here because of those connections. See, place is mediated through relationships. If we don't have relationships in a place, we tend not to have an affection for that place. But if we have relationships in that place, we tend to then grow affections for that place. And, and we could be living, again, in the neighborhood, and the neighborhood not be home. So what are we, what are we after here? Well, we're, we're after a sense of commitment and embrace and intentionality and growing love and growing investment in the community so that we're moving up from just this being a place where we preach and sing to a place where we have an intentional missional commitment to a place where now we are investing psychologically and socially and emotionally and financially in this place. That can look like living here, but it doesn't have to. But I want to challenge some of us to live here. Here's why. One writer put it this way. He's a pastor in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He says, if you really want to make a difference in a city, move into a neighborhood and stay there for 20 years. I think that's right. I think that's right. And here's why I think that's right. I'm going to give it to you in the form of another quote from Charles Montgomery in his book, Happy City. He says, very simply, distance raises the cost of every friendly encounter. The farther you are away from your friends, the farther you are away from your church members, the farther you are away from the people that you know and love, the more costly it will be to have friendly encounters with them. It's going to be costly in terms of time. It's going to be costly in terms of driving. It's going to be costly in terms of money you put in the tank. It's going to be costly in terms of competition when putting dinner on the table or whatever the case may be, right? So distance actually increases the cost of knowing and loving people and engaging in a place. This is why I think being in the place you're trying to reach is actually going to be the more effective mission strategy, all right? So... The more distance we travel, the more it will cost us. The more loosely connected we are, the, the lower will be our investment in a place. And so I want to encourage us to relinquish our passive approach to relationships, friendships, and neighboring. I think in a dislocated, disembodied world, it's easy to be passive about building friendships and relationships. 
And it's easy to settle into that. And I want to encourage us to rebel against that. To relinquish passivity and to embrace intentionality. And to sort of lean into the habit and the work of making friends and building relationships and growing those relationships. And we all know how to do this. The the disembodiment and the dislocation has tempted us to think we don't know how to do this, but we have known how to do this since the playground. You know how to make friends. You see somebody who looks like they're having fun, they look like they're interesting, and you go up to them and say what? Will you be my friend? It ain't, no, it ain't no fancier than that, right? We be trying to say it without saying it. Where, where you going today, man? What, what you getting into later on? You know, looking thirsty, right? Can I come? Can I come? Just go ahead and put it out there. Hey, man, I need a friend. Will you be my friend? And then you invest. You text back, <laughs> right? Or you call back right? And you make room in your schedule, and you get together. And this is the thing about making a new friendship. If, if it's a friendship that seemed to click like that and it was really easy, it doesn't feel like a cost at all. But normally, I mean, the older you get, the less that happens, right? Because you, you're busy. You got family, you got kids, you got work, you stuff on your mind, right? And you need to memorize scriptures so you can be thinking positively, right? And, and so, And so when you meet people, they tend to feel distant rather than close. When you're younger, they tend to feel closer rather than distant. Because usually you're in environments where you have a lot in common. You're in the same school, you play on the same sports team, whatever. You get older, that's less the case. So what happens is it feels like a big cost to get to know people. It's a deception. It's an illusion. We're still five on the playground. Most all of us are. We, there's a sense in which we never outgrow that little boy or that little girl. I'm 53 years old. I, I know, I know. I look 27. <laughs> I'm 53 years old, and I'm still talking to that five-year-old. I'm still dealing with that little boy in here, right? But that little boy knows how to say, hey, will you be my friend? So he's also an advantage. And I just want to encourage us to not be passive, but to be active in building relationships in the church and in the community for the sake of God's presence in this place. Now, let me do one other application here or one other little, uh, little aside here to, to sort of help us think. Um, and I especially want to sort of um, talk with those of us who live outside of, those who live outside of Southeast D.C. Again, I want to say for the fifth time, I think that's totally fine. It's totally fine. We want, though, for you to think about both your individual and your collective callings, right? So individually, you may use your freedom or feel called to live wherever you live, right? Upper Marlboro, um, you know, Chevrolet, wherever the case might be, right? That's fine. But your individual calling to that place should mean two things. Number one, what we're talking about in terms of building a relationship with that place, you should be doing that where you live, right? So we don't get to not be Christians because we don't live near our church, right? You still got to be a Christian where you live, and, and part of what that means is you got to love your neighbor 
right? And you got to build relationships with your neighbor, and you got to share the gospel and, and care and be cared for and all those things. So number one, uh, wherever you live, if you are living there with a sense of calling, you should be doing the things that we're talking about right where you're at, okay? That's your individual calling. But number two, we want to ask you to think about your collective calling, which is a, a sort of part of what it means to be a member of this church. This church has a mission statement that we are playing out in a particular neighborhood. So what we want to encourage you to do now is to grow your capacity for relationships. To grow your capacity to the extent that it includes both the neighborhood where you live and the neighborhood where you're on mission with the church. Right? In other words, we're asking you to love more, not less. We're asking you to grow the borders of your heart's concern so it includes where you live actively and it includes where you worship actively, to be on mission together with us in that way. Move along the continuum from visitor to missionary to home. Have this place be, in some sense, socially and emotionally and spiritually in your prayer lives, part of what you consider home. Because this is where, as a family of God's people, we reside and where we do his work. College students, you are right now, home for you, most of you, is the campus. Consider that your neighborhood. Evangelize as you do your neighborhood. I praise God for the way the campus ministry has grown from a couple students who were coming uh, and, and attending to 25, 30 of y'all, more like 50 and 60 when we serve lunch, but y'all be in here thick. Of being here thick, and y'all bring us so much encouragement. We want to be partners with you in your ministry and witness on the campus, just as you are partners with us as a church family in our ministry and witness here in the neighborhood. I love the way many of you are not only doing campus things, but increasingly becoming more involved in the life of the church. You know, I looked at the picture of the, the men's fellowship yesterday and the bowling, and the bowling outing. And half the guys there were guys from campus, right? And I'm told that Mike Coven sunned all y'all. Uh, he gave all y'all a lesson. Don't forget that man's a D1 athlete now, all right? Don't forget that, right? But that, that's, that's a good illustration, right? Love where you are on the campus, rep Christ on the campus, and then also participate in the life and the ministry of the church as a whole in this place. And you guys are good examples for all of us adults who are working through those dynamics, right? Now, here's the thing. If your individual calling doesn't overlap in some way, your collective calling with us, that's an indication that one of those callings need to change. So if you're ever asking yourself the question of when should I move from ARC to be somewhere else, um, it's, it's when you can no longer you know, create a little bit of a Venn diagram and, and overlap those two circles. One of those circles needs to change. Either you move closer to the church and the neighborhood to be on mission here and to be a part of the community, et cetera, and closer means with whatever reasonable distance is for you, right, that works for you. Either you do that or you find a church where you live and you plug into the life of that church where you live so that the, so that the witness of that church grows brighter by your presence there, not just on Sunday, but every day during the week. You tracking with me? If you need help thinking about that, that's why you have pastors. We'd be happy to pray and help you think about those things. So let me give you a few quick uh, applications, and we'll move quickly to our final point. Uh, these are really just questions, right? Given what we said about studying, being culturally aware, are you willing to study your neighborhood? 
the campus, the community where you live, Southeast D.C. A great place to start with that is our sister Hannah Baker uh, for the last couple of years has put together our Bless the Block series. Go back, grab those videos on YouTube. This year she lined up impeccable scholars of D.C. and of culture. Um, so go, go watch those, lean in, learn more, glean more uh, about our community. You'll find some great book recommendations if you go do that as well. Um, so the question is, are you willing to study? Study by observation. Study by reading. Number two, just ask the question, do you have any friends here at ARC and in Southeast? If you're sitting there saying no, okay, pray. Ask the Lord to give you a friend in the congregation, in the community. Ask him to give you three friends. Ask him to give you five friends. If you ask for more than five, you're not an introvert. Right, <laughs> right. You're actually asking the Lord for a party, okay, <laughs> which is fine. And then lastly, do your collective and individual callings overlap? Do you have margin for that in your life? Last thing, we're going to reach a neighborhood for its holistic good. We want to be local. We want to be culturally aware. Number three, we want to be an alternative. What do I mean by an alternative? Again, a church that is like the world is useless to the world. The more we live, think, feel, act, the more we chase the same goals and ambitions of the world, the least useful we are to the world in making the difference between Jesus and his kingdom and the world that's fallen, the less useful we are in making that difference clear. So we need to be a clear alternative. We want to be in the neighborhood, for the neighborhood, but distinct from the neighborhood because we're actually pilgrims headed to a new city. Now, to see this contrast, look again one last time in Titus chapter 1. Consider the differences between what we saw in, chapter, in verses 10 to 16, and consider now what Paul writes about as qualifications for elders in verses 6 to 9. Paul writes there, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer's God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, this is Paul's list of qualifications for uh, aspiring pastors and elders, the persons that Timothy is to appoint in the towns that he goes to. Uh, these character, uh, this, this profile is, is uh, meant to be exemplary among elders, but they are the kinds of things that all Christians should aspire to. We should all want to be marked by hospitality and uh, love and those kinds of things, right? So here we can also say he's describing the Christian community through sort of the examples and the leaders that are supposed to be uh, guiding that community. Notice that the first word in verse 10 is four. So the reason Paul gives us the descriptions in verses six and nine is not just so that the church has this kind of leadership, but also so that the church would be able to contend with the culture that it's in. So the reason you want these kinds of men leading the congregation as pastors is because there's a world out there of insubordination, a world out there of false teaching, a world out there of bad character, a world out there of people who don't know God and reject the truth. 
Notice how these verses 6 to 9 parallel with verses 10 to 16. So Paul begins by talking about the family in both cases. He says of the elder that he must be the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. But then he says over in verse 10 and 11 that there are many who are insubordinate, the very opposite of the elder's children's. Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced. Why? They are upsetting whole families. False teaching destroys families. Or, or consider the morality. For an overseer, God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. These are the sort of shining contrast to the dark sort of cultural, moral condition of Crete, where Paul says there in verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said that Cretans are always liars, e evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You see the contrast? Or, or the spirituality, verse, verse 9, the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Where who is that? Look at verses 15 and 16. These people whose both their minds and their consciences are defiled, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So what we are meant to be are like bright stars of God's community shining against the dark backdrop of fallen culture. And the contrast is meant to be evident. It's meant to be clear. It's why we value holiness and righteousness, why we practice discipline, why we seek to grow in the nurture and the fullness of Christ. It's because we, we want the world to know the brokenness of the world outside the church isn't your only option. There's the healing and the wholeness of grace and the gospel inside the church. Come here where broken people are mended and made whole. Come here where sinful people are given new hearts and begin to live righteously. Come here where the hopeless find hope inside the church, where there is the good news that Christ has died for us and has been raised from the grave for us so that all of us who put our faith in him and follow him in faith actually have new lives. We actually have new hearts. Our address didn't have to change. Our hearts did. And as we read in our call to worship, Acts chapter 17, God has appointed the place of our living so that we might be brought near to the gospel. If you're here this morning and you wandered in here not knowing if you should be here, I want to tell you that didn't actually happen by accident. God has brought you near to hear this good news that there is a Savior who died for you and who will make you new, that you can put your faith in him and have a new heart and live forever in his love. If you would pay careful attention to your life, just as if I would pay careful attention to my life, I would bet you $100 to a cheeseburger that you will be able to observe how the world out there has battered and beaten and bruised and broken you. It's a harsh, inhospitable, unloving world. It only produces harshness and inhospitable behavior and a lack of love. 
But in the family of God, in the community of his people, there's a balm, there's a medicine, there's a healing that comes from God through Christ by faith. And you don't need insurance for it. It's free for all those who would put their hope and their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would. And if you have questions about that, this is why we exist. This is why we stick around after the service. Ask anybody in here who looks like they might be a Christian. You'll find out real quick whether or not they're just like you. And if they're just like you, lock hands. You found a friend. Go ask the next person. We would love to answer any questions you have about what it means to follow Jesus. We have all had those questions, and God has been kind enough to answer them for us in his book. Two needs, and we're done as a church. We need a team of leaders. Notice Paul is telling Titus to appoint elders, plural, in every town. No one person has all the gifts they need to be able to lead all of God's people on this mission. When you observe in the Bible, all the work is happening in teams. So there are four of us who are pastors of this church. We are right now talking with uh, another six or seven guys uh, about the potential of becoming pastors and elders in this church. Praise God. Praise God. So we, we are hopeful if that's God's leading, then over the course of the next several months, we'll be presenting to you guys uh, persons who to serve you as pastors. Pray for that work. Pray for their discernment. Uh, pray that their calling would be evident, whether it's to serve or not, and that our team might grow, right? So there are four of us now. We'd love to have 12 because y'all are a lot to keep up with, all right? So we need team leadership, and we also need good ecclesiology. Fancy word, ecclesiology means the doctrine of the church, how the church is supposed to operate, right? So the reason why he is in Crete is, notice, to set things in order, not just in the appointing of the elders, but also the teaching of those elders how to lead and operate the church. I've been brokenhearted over the last month or so as I've just learned of a number of scandals that have broken out in high-profile ministries, in in large churches, uh, and almost in every case, the scandal has arisen because it's evident they don't understand how the church is meant to operate. So let me give you an example of what I mean. These pastors have not had other elders, other pastors that they are accountable to and leading the church with. They've had boards of directors. Oftentimes, the members of the boards of the directors are not only not members of the church, they don't even live in the city and the state of the church. So the pastor has picked some people who he thinks of as sort of, you know, counselors and other kinds of things, but they have no sort of connection to the local church. The local church didn't call them, as is your responsibility. The local church hasn't vetted them and prayed for them and tested their character, as is your responsibility as a congregation. And so now things have gone cattywampus, gone sideways, right? And then that's when you most discover that you actually need ecclesiology. When everything's easy and going well, it seems like, oh, that's just an old dusty doctrine that nobody talks about except pastors, right? But when the thing goes bad, you then discover you have no brakes on the pastor, you have no process for correcting things, and the hurt gets multiplied. 
So we, we want people to actually know what the church is, that it's made up of redeemed people who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that we want people who know what the offices of the church are, deacons and elders and who can fill those offices. We want the membership to know what their responsibilities are as members because we are, in our polity, a congregational church, and we want all of that operating well. We want all those gears. You don't look at gears until they need oil normally. But somebody needs to be oiling it because when they get gunked up, it breaks the whole thing, right? And so we need that good ecclesiology if we are going to be healthy and if we're going to be the alternative to the dark world that the Bible is calling us to. So in conclusion, four applications here in this point. They all have to do with prayer. Pray for more leaders like those described in verses 6 to 9. Pray for more leaders like those in verses 6 and 9. If you're a Christian and you're a member of, church, of a church, of a local church, you should have in your prayer journals some regular schedule of asking the Lord to give to the church gifted men and women to serve in leadership. Pray for that. Secondly, pray for unity among the leaders. Uh, I praise God. I've never been in a more unified leadership team than this one here at ARC. I give God praise for that. It ain't always been that at ARC, right? I give God praise for that. That's a grace. Pray that we would nurture that. Pray that that not be disrupted. Pray that when things get hard or, or we have a difference of opinion about something, we would still, in the difference of opinion, feel and communicate and cherish the unity that we have so that we can lead you together effectively. Number three, pray for more church plants and more church planters. We, if this is our vision of planting churches in every neighborhood, we want to pray the Lord would add to our number so we can send them out. It's an odd thing to pray. Most of the time we want people to be added to our number so we can keep a hold of them for a long time. Y'all are not my sheep. Y'all are not my disciples. You belong to Jesus. And if Jesus wants, you to, wants to send you, I want you to go. Right? We'll cry after you're gone. We'll throw a party before you leave. But you got to go if the Lord says go. So pray that he would raise up church planters and pray that he would raise up members who would go, uh, even if he would send you all the way between now and next Sunday, and I'm the only one here by myself, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to start over and plant another church with God's help. After I cry, pray. Pray, number four, for the gifts of the leaders and the congregation to be used. Paul planted this church in Crete but he left Titus there to organize it. They are flourishing in their respective gifts. When you get to the end in chapter 3, you'll see there's some other teams coming and going and sending resources, etc. So Timothy is not only on a team, he's planting teams of elders, and not only that, but there is sort of hovering around in connection to him other teams that are supplying and doing the work. And so pray that the gifts that the Lord has placed in the persons of this congregation will be multiplied and used for the glory of God and for the salvation of souls. Our vision, if we had one, would be to be a church that God uses to plant so many other churches in our neighborhood and even around the country through things like the Creek Collective that it would make the gospel unavoidable in the neglected and vulnerable and um, poorer neighborhoods of our country. That's why we exist. It's for the four corners of the block. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for what you've had for us this morning, Titus, and this series. 
We pray that you'd help us to think carefully about place and embodiment. And we pray that you'd help us to use, Lord, all that you have given us to love and to bless all that you have placed in our path. We pray that you would do this so that many would come to know Jesus, to love him, to be saved by him, to trust in him and his salvation. And many would inherit that eternal place, that eternal home in your kingdom, in glory. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.